Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your holy word and for the continual instruction you give us through it. Thank you that you have not only been gracious to us in telling us the truth of the gospel, but you have provided us with a lens by which to view the world. You've given us the story of redemption. And I pray that this morning as we think and contemplate a little bit further on that reality of the, the groanings that we presently experience in light of coming glory, that Lord, you would give us perseverance and patience and you'd help us to trust you in the meantime and that we would grow during this time of groaning, be strengthened by your grace and mercy, and that all of this would ultimately rebound to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Last week, I did something that I don't think I've done in all the years that I've been preaching on Sunday mornings, and that is I decided to cut my sermon in half in the midst of the sermon itself. I don't usually mind doing that on a Wednesday night or a Sunday school kind of lesson where I just kind of feel like I'm just going through some theological concepts and we just stop wherever we get to and pick up where we left off. But usually whenever I'm preaching, there's kind of an aim, there's almost like an arc to a sermon where, especially if it involves some bad news, I like to usually get around to the good news. Um, It's kind of a tough thing to share with some people, you know, you're a sinner and condemned to hell. Let's pray. Um, uh, but, but to then actually tell them about the good news that you can be saved by what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. So usually there's a little bit of that in play. And so I typically don't like to cut sermons short, but I knew as I was getting towards the hour mark, I was like, there's no way I'm finishing this. And so we're going to, um, thankfully by the Lord's providence, finish the sermon that I set out to, to preach last week today, and I hope that I can kind of turn the corner a little bit further and share some of the good news that God has to share with us regarding this topic. Last week um, went a little bit differently, at least in part because naturalism has had such a massive impact on our present culture, and I felt an overwhelming need to explain what are just absolutely irreconcilable differences between a naturalistic worldview uh, which, with its accompanying belief in evolution, and a biblical worldview, and its accompanying belief in creation. One system says that we are the product of chance and luck over billions of years, while the other proclaims we are the special creation of a perfect, holy, all-powerful God. One system asks people to believe that we evolved from lesser life forms into what we are today, while the other says that man has been always distinct from the rest of the earth and the rest of the creatures. One says our futures are going to be determined by forces of dark energy that we know nothing about, while the other says our future is held in the hands of an all-wise, all-good, all-powerful God who made everything, sustains everything, and is guiding everything to its intended conclusion. 
A naturalistic worldview says there is no God and therefore we are the accidental product of haphazard, mindless processes that occurred by random chance. While a biblical worldview proclaims there is a God who created everything on purpose and with specific purpose. We also spent some time last week distinguishing pure science from historical science in order to dispel the myth that the fight is between science and religion. Rather, it it has and always will be a fight between contrary worldviews or contrary faiths or contrary beliefs. Every scientist has presuppositions, beliefs that he comes to the table with before considering any scientific inquiry or drawing any scientific conclusion. Every scientist carries an undergirding worldview, which has a massive impact on the sorts of observations, interpretations, and conclusions that he'll make. But particularly, this comes into play whenever you start to try to engage in a process of extrapolating backward and considering how things got to where they are today. You're not engaging in some sort of um, observational science then, you're engaging in a lot of conjecture. You're engaging in a lot of extrapolation. And this is where beliefs that come before the ideas of science come into play. Now, not all scientists are honest about that fact. There's a lot of scientists today that would say that since I'm a Christian, I have biases when I approach the realm of science. And they would claim that they themselves don't have those biases. The point we were trying to make last week is all of us have biases. All of us have presuppositions. I'll absolutely admit the fact that I believe there's a God who created all things. I see the world in light of that. But he also has to admit the fact that he comes to the to this discussion with the belief that there is no God, and that we're all random chance and all the rest. So this has to at least be admitted. Now, there's quite a few people today that will not admit that. And they'll criticize any contrary claim because they say that, you know, you're just a religious person, that's why you believe those things. But remember, we said they also have a religion. Everybody has a religion. Everybody has religious beliefs. Everybody has philosophical beliefs. And they're not determined through scientific inquiry. But there are at least a few who openly admit that situation from the other side of it. And I, I thought that this would provide one stunning example of this. A man by the name of John Dumphy said the following, quote, I am convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers that correctly perceive their role as proselytizers of a new faith a religion of humanity that recognizes and respects the spark of what theologians call divinity in every human being. The classroom must and will become an arena of conflict between the old and the new. The rotting corpse of Christianity, together with all of its adjacent evils and misery, and the new faith of humanism— resplendent with the promise of a world in which the never-realized Christian ideal of love thy neighbor will finally be achieved. John Dumphy wrote that in 1983. 1983. It's a really interesting and fascinating study to do, actually, a little bit of a, a historical research in the development of public education in the United States and who are some of the main framers of the public education system and then to note some further discussions that happened after that. And when you hear those kinds of words, note, you won't hear those kinds of words from everybody, right? Not everyone will be so bald-faced as John Dumphy is being right there. He sincerely believes and understands that he comes to the whole picture with a religious belief of humanism. 
He, he's, and notice that he sees the role of public educators as promulgating a new faith, the faith of humanism, that there is no God, that all that exists is matter. Matter is all that matters, that matter itself is eternal. And he sees himself as, as he says that educators should be, see themselves as proselytizers of a new faith, where the rotting corpse of Christianity is done away with and replaced with a new faith, a faith in man himself, that the, the deity, divinity is in us ourselves, that we are gods. And this is where we're actually going to find, you know, this love of thy neighbor. This is where it's finally going to be achieved. Not in looking to God, but looking to ourselves. We're going to finally find this. I hope we're awakened to the incredible damage that that sort of proselytizing has done. Because from 1983, fast forward now to 2023, 40 years later, we've seen what those doctrines have done on the United States of America. We've seen the way in which this generation has now grown up through those years. And I hope that we've been awakened to the incredible damage that has happened. Notice that the secular classroom is being weaponized as a place to catechize or proselytize children to the humanistic cause. This is what I at least appreciate about Dumphy. He understands that education is necessarily a proselytizing thing. When you teach someone, you are leading them somewhere. There's a destination I have in mind. And if you, there's no such thing as leading them to nowhere. You're leading them somewhere. So there's something going on whenever education's happening. There is no neutrality in education. It's a myth. There's no place, such thing as neutral education. Education, by its very nature, holds to certain truths and promulgates those truths and wants to lead people in a certain direction. And I think we've seen what's happened in the last 40 years in our country. Certainly one of the long-term fruits of humanistic philosophy and religion is the alphabet soup of LGBTQIA+, ampersand, everything else you want to go after that, right? We're having to deal with this at least for one reason, is because it's a consequence of an idea playing out. Where God has said isn't true, man's maker of his own destiny, we can just remake ourselves however we want, recreate ourselves however we want. When man rejects God, his creator, his sustainer, his lawgiver, his sovereign, he sows the wind and reaps the whirlwind. God gives wicked and rebellious men over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. See Romans 1, 24 and following. Repeatedly, we remember we've seen that phrase together, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. And undergirding all of this slide into these further and further expressions and celebrations of immorality is a fundamental worldview shift. I think that discussions of creation and evolution are one of the clearest examples of Paul's warnings in Romans 1.18. So notice, in Romans 1.24 and following, he talks about the moral repercussions of what happens to a people who have neglected God, forsaken God have made gods for themselves in the image of creeping creatures and all of the rest. But notice where that all starts, back up to verse 18 in Romans 1, and we find, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks. And they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. And here's the classic verse. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. They replaced God with a creature. They replaced God with something God had made, and they called that God instead. And we see the tragic consequences of that exchange. What I hope to do last week was to provide you with some kind of macro-level thoughts when considering discussions like these, and hopefully what you got out of it was an encouragement to hold fast to God's word, God's inerrant and fallible word, no matter what men say, no matter what white lab coat comes into the room, regardless of what they say their degrees are and their accolades, we all have to engage in this fight. There is no position of neutrality in these matters. Now remember, this whole discussion about creation is happening in the context of believers encountering trials, troubles, and persecutions. That's where we are here in Romans 8. He's kind of crescendoing into talking about this wondrous glory to come. And all of a sudden, it's almost like as if he takes it aside and says, it's not as if I don't recognize that right now you as a church are undergoing tough times, hard things. And so Paul wants to help us contextualize present troubles in light of future coming glory. Present groanings in light of future glory. And Paul wants to then work us through three exemplars, three examples, three illustrations of the reality that present groanings are happening to us now while we await coming glory. Notice that the Bible does not discount sufferings. In fact, God's word makes plain that following Jesus will mean for you more difficulties, more trials. All those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. There is no guarantee in Scripture that you'll have good times now. You are not guaranteed an easy go of it in this life. If someone told you if you become a Christian, your life's going to become easy street, they lied to you. It's not true. That's not the promise the Scriptures give to you. If anything, there will be increased difficulties and hardships as we live in a fallen world with people who don't love Jesus. However, the comfort that comes to us in in Scripture is a comfort that comes to us in the form of looking to a better country, of looking to the promise of a kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus described it in John 18, 36. What's inescapable for the Christian worldview is that there will both be present groanings and yet then future glory. There is no glory apart from a time of groaning, but the groanings will give way to glory. So in part three of Groanings and Glory, we're going to complete our study of the groaning of creation. That's what we're looking at here first, the groaning of creation. Last week, we spent all of our time in the pre-groaning creation. I want to just remind you of what what we talked about there. I'll just give you a couple of little highlights from that discussion. We talked about creation's beginning. We defined what we we mean by the word creation in this text, katesis in in the Greek. It happens four times in this passage. It happens in every verse, verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, and 22. We see the word creation used repeatedly. And we said together after studying this and talking about it a little bit that this is not a reference to believers because we see in the following passage there's going to be a discussion about believers groaning themselves. So in contrast to the creation groaning, it says then down in verse 
what is it, uh, 23, not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruit of the spirits, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. So there's the part where we get to believers groaning. So the creation's groaning can't be a story of believers, nor can it be a reference to unbelievers, for unbelievers are not longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Whoever is the ones engaged in this groaning, they're longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And I can guarantee you that lost people are not looking forward to the day when God's people are revealed and enter into the glory that he has for them. So it's definitely not a reference to them, nor can it be a reference to fallen angels. For while they are a creation of God, they're also not longing for the revelation of the sons of God at the consummation of history. That just means judgment coming for them. They're not looking forward to that either. But neither could this be a reference to elect angels, for they're not pictured as groaning throughout Scripture. We see them looking into things that God is doing in redemptive history, but certainly their position is not one of groaning. They have not fallen from their proper abode. They're still right where they ought to be in the Lord's service and presence. So their position isn't that. Although they might be looking forward to this coming day of glory, looking into it, uh, their position shouldn't be described as one of groaning. They're not, they have not been put under subjection to something. So what is this ref- reference to? Well, as we concluded after doing that little study, it's everything else. Everything else that God made. All the rest of creation. So that means inanimate creation. That means irrational creation. By that, by that we mean all the stuff that makes up the universe that we find in days one through six other than man and angels, right? So in other words, the vegetation, the animals, and then all the stuff and matter that makes up the universe. That's what's being referred to here in creation. We then discussed together the story of creation. We went back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I made an impassioned appeal that we all believe all of the scriptures. That means from page 1 to the last page, right? That means from Genesis 1, 2, 3 all the way to the end of Revelation. As I said with you before, if we can't trust Genesis 1, 2, 3, what makes you think you can trust John 1, 2, 3? Or Romans 8. And this became as important because Romans 8 verses 19 through 22 assumes the veracity of, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. This happens throughout scripture. Here's the problem. If you try to do something kind of, you monkey around with the early chapters of Genesis, you get problems all over the rest of the Bible because the rest of the Bible refers back to Genesis. There's references, for example, to the historical Adam as we saw even here in Romans 5, right? Like, there's references to those events in the rest of the Bible. So if Genesis 1, 2, 3 are now suspect, that means the whole rest of the Bible suspect. The Bible is plain. And what's interesting about this is that the Bible's description of creation, of the world we live in, is, is beautifully consistent with what we see within the world around us, right? We see a beautiful world, yes, but we also see a fallen world, We see a beautiful world, yes, but it's also a hostile world. The Bible is plain, and God's word can be fully, finally, and forever trusted. There is one who was there to witness creation when it happened, and it was God himself. And so certainly he can tell us how he did it, and he has. We then talked about the fall in Genesis 3. We talked about the present state of the world as being fallen from its good beginning. We saw in Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Note here, 
that this futility of creation, it was subjected at some point, which means prior to that moment, the, the God had created a good and beautiful world. But as we read in Genesis 3, the entrance of sin perverted its purpose. Its operation has been for a time sapped of its strength. And so creation is falling short of its full, fully given, God-given function. It's not that it's completely failing to perform its function. It's not, it's not performing in its optimal way because creation has been subjected to futility, which means it's been hindered from accomplishing its ultimate purpose. And then we ask the question, who has done this? Who has subjected creation to this? Not of its own will. Creation hasn't asked this for itself, but because of him who subjected it, the one who subjected it. And who was that? We, we proposed, could it be Adam? Could it be Satan? And we landed it. It has to be God. Look at, again, Genesis 3, 17 and 18 seems to explain this reality. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. So notice that the devil has a play in this in tempting Eve. Um, Eve gives it to Adam. Adam eats of the, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil as well. We, we're told here because of Adam's sin, there's consequences that fall, so it's because of Adam's sin, but it's God who is the one who subjects the earth as a result of man's Sin. It was brought low by God's judgment upon man for man's rebellion. And so we see good in creation because it's the way that God made it originally. And yet we also see a mixture of trouble and evil and destruction because creation has fallen from its original status. It has been subjected. So I've taken a moment to consider the past and I want to consider the present. So this goes to point two, the mid-groaning creation we can talk about what creation was like before the groaning, but now let's talk about what it looks like for creation mid-groan. Two phrases here I want you to pick up on. The first one is creation's longing. Look at verse 19. For the longing expectation of creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. The longing expectation of creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God. Verse 19 begins with the word for. It indicates the connection between this section and the previous. Verses 19 through 22 is meant to be an explanation of how the sufferings of the present are not worthy to be compared with the glories to come. And creation is the first place he wants to use as an illustration to display this reality. Creation itself finds itself in present groaning awaiting a coming revelation. Throughout these verses, creation is personified. Creation is described as eagerly awaiting with longing expectation. Many commentators have written words like this. Creation is on tiptoes. Creation is craning its neck. Creation is lifting its head. Creation is waiting expectantly for the coming revelation of the sons of God. Like the picture I get in my mind is like, you know, kids on Christmas morning peeking around the corner, wanting to look at what presents are there, right? Like this kind of idea. Creation is on tiptoes, waiting anxiously with longing expectation, lifting its head, craning its neck, longing for this moment. This is not the only place where creation is personified like this. We had a couple of passages read for us this morning. Psalm 65 describes the pastures of the wilderness dripping, the hills girding themselves with rejoicing. The, the hills girding themselves with rejoicing. The meadows clothed with flocks, 
What, what great imagery, right? As you imagine like flocks of sheep coming down off of a, off of a hill. So the, it's like as if the hill itself is clothed with flocks and the valleys are covered with grain. And then also it says, they shout for joy. Yes, they sing. Now, do the hills actually sing? Do, do, the, do these valleys actually sing? Well, again, we're it's using metaphorical language here to describe that this is the kind of glory that God is displaying through creation itself. Psalm 98.8, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing. Sing together for joy. Let the mountains sing. Let the rivers clap their hands. Isaiah 55, 12. For you will go out with joy, be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. And all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Just think about that for just a moment. So all of creation longs to give glory to God. You just put yourself in the position. You're a tree. You lack the hands that you wish you could clap, right? We've been given hands. Are we using them? Are we using them to God's glory, right? We've been given a voice. Trees don't have a voice. Are we using our voice to God's glory? We've been given a mind. Are we using our mind to God's glory? We've been given feet. Are we using them to God's glory? Notice we can think about all the things that God has graced us with. And the picture here is that creation longs to be able to give more praise to the Lord. Oh, if only the trees had hands. If only the rocks had mouths. We've been given mouths. We've been given hands. Jeremiah 4.28 speaks the other direction. The earth shall mourn, the heavens above be dark, because I have spoken, I have purposed, I will not change my mind, nor will I turn from it. Notice we read a little bit of the further context here in Jeremiah 4, but but notice that when God brings judgment upon his people, often it affects creation. Creation is involved in that. And when God blesses his people, guess what also gets blessed? Creation. You notice this, there's a connection between man and his dwelling, God, when he brings blessing, often shows that blessing in rain and crops and animals and things going well on the earth. And when man is being punished, often drought and difficulty and hardship, notice that sometimes we just kind of implicitly just kind of roll through that. But recognize this is from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, it immediately has implications on their environment. And when God chooses to bless his people, there are usually immediate implications on man's environment. The idea that's being pointed out here is through this personification is that creation is aware that its present state is not the way things ought to be. It's longing for God to bring to pass the consummation of history. That consummation will occur in connection with the revealing, the unveiling, the apocalypsis, the uncovering of the Son's of God. This longing is in the midst of groaning. So there's our second point underneath this one, creation's travail. Look at verse 22. This describes creation's present experience. For we know that all the creation groans together and suffers agony together until now. Two words there, groans together and then suffers agony together. All creation, first of all, groans together. So in Greek, you can do like kind of cool things where you can jam words together. And so what we actually see here is just one Greek word there, which is being translated by two English words, groans together. 
Because the little prefix soon means with or together. And so they just, that, that soon is put to the front of this verb. And as a result, it's the only place it happens in the New Testament. Fancy word for that is hypoxlegomena. It happens once. It's said once. Um, but the, if you take off that soon, that prepositional adder to the beginning of the word, if you take that off of there, the word groaning happens a few times in the New Testament. Let me just give you a couple of examples where this word is used. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 and 4 says, it speaks of our groaning in this tent while we wait to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven when the mortal will be swallowed up by life. Notice 2 Corinthians 5, speaking the same sorts of realities, but here speaking about Christians groaning, longing for the day in which we'll be set free from this tent, waiting to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Hebrews 13, 17 encourages believers to obey their leaders and submit to them so that they can watch over their souls with joy and not grief. That word there also be translated groaning. It's the same Greek word there. So don't make it hard on your leaders, church. (laughs) Don't make them have to groan or feel grieved by you. Make it a joy for them to do that. Can I just insert here? You guys do make it a joy for us. We're very, very thankful for that. Very, very thankful for that. James 5.9 instructs us not to complain or murmur or grumble or groan against one another. Same word there. So creation here is just being described as groaning or grieving as a result of its subjection. I like the way that Phillips says it picturesquely. He says, he calls this groaning a symphony of size. The creation is engaged in a symphony of size. A beautiful lament. Now it might sound morbid, but it is true nonetheless. That the moment that a baby is born, yes, it is true, a new life has come into this world, but that new life is also in a decline to death, right? From the moment that we are born, we are starting to die. Creation subjection extends to everything, and nothing that we can do can undo that putrefaction, right? We are all under the consequences of the fall. Things are wearing out. We are growing older. We are approaching death. All of us. Daniel Doriani asks why God would curse the ground and frustrate mankind the way that he has. And he offers the following. Because it's better that mankind be frustrated and sense that something is wrong than to live in heedless bliss for decades and then plunge into the abyss. Let's that for a moment. What is actually better for man? That he live in relative prosperity, never experiencing any trouble, and then die and go to hell forever? Or that he encounter trials, hardships, difficulties that make him wonder, why are things this way? What's wrong? How does this get fixed? Where do I go to be saved? Use another example. God scrambled human languages at the Tower of Babel for the same reason. Better that mankind be scattered than we be united godlessly. Better that we be separated out that we might realize our problems than us be united without God. Sorrows lead mankind to look for deliverance. Pain is like a shout of fire or help. It bellows that we have a problem and it pushes us to act. In other words... Perhaps part of the reason why God subjected creation 
was to make us feel the pain of the fact that we're living in a fallen world, in a world that is not on right terms with God who made us. Notice the next phrase here. Not only does it groan together, but it suffers agony together. All creation suffers agony together. The Greek word used here for labor together is another hypoxagomena. It only happens here, but again, if we take off that together off the front of the word, we're left with the word labor, and that word happens a couple times in the New Testament, just like the previous word for groaning. For example, Jesus, in speaking of the end of the age, said in Matthew 24, 8, but all these things are merely the beginnings of labor or birth pains, is the way that most translations have it. And also, you can see this also in Mark 3, or 13, 8. Peter, when he's preaching in Acts 2, describes God's action in raising Jesus from the dead as loosing Jesus from the pains of death. Acts 2.24. And speaking of the coming day of the Lord, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says that the destruction will come upon people suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. So there's really clear, not just talking about general pain, we're talking about labor pains. So the description that's being given here is that creation is described as in birth pains, even until now, as it eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Really interesting language, right? This personification here is really cool. Like imagine a woman giving birth, longing to see the face of her child, right? Creation is in birth pains, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, I love this paragraph from Lloyd-Jones, so I've included it here. Listen to how he describes what, what nature is kind of engaged in, and I, I love the way he kind of tries to picture this. He says, nature every year, as it were, makes an effort to renew itself, to produce something permanent. It has come out of the death and the darkness of all that is so true of the winter, in the spring, it seems to be trying to produce a perfect creation. But unfortunately, it does not succeed, for spring leads only to summer, and summer to autumn, and autumn back to winter. Nature still repeats the effort annually. Nature does every spring what men tend to do on the 1st of January every year in their New Year's resolutions, but nothing comes of it. A lot of agony, a lot of sweat, a lot of proposal, but back you go to winter again. There's no hope for man or creation apart from God's purpose of salvation as taught in the Bible. You see, creation groans and suffers birth pains in the present, looking with eager expectation for the glory to come. It's as if, in the picture that Lloyd-Jones is trying to pick up here, is as if creation every year says, maybe this year it will happen, you know? Let's bring about new life, spring. And yet we see the decline. Back to winter again, things go. Difficulties and trials of the present, though, will finally conclude with victory and joy. So creation has this eager expectation for the future. It's longing for when the day in which its groaning will be done, when its labor pains are over. So let's, point three, look at the post-groaning creation. Is first of all, note creation's hope. Again, verse 20, the end of verse 20, and then into verse 21, in hope, so subjected in hope that all the creation itself might be set free from the slavery of corruption. 
In the present, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Creation itself is eagerly awaiting for the subjection to be lifted. Creation is frustrated in its failure to reach its true and full potential. It hopes to be set free from its present corruption. And this hope to be set free is not in vain. It's just a matter of time. The first note of hope was given even actually prior to God subjecting creation to its present state in Genesis 3, 17 and 18. How can I say that? Because you go up just a couple of verses. What do we find in Genesis 3, 15? A passage that many people, many theologians refer to as the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. Why do they say that? Because this is, what G, this is what God says to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So serpent, while you might be doing some bruising on the heel, there is coming a day where the seed of the woman will crush your head. The the seed of the woman one day will be the serpent's head crusher. And he's going to put things right again. So note, that happens. That statement to the serpent is made even before creation is subjected to thorns and thistles, down in verses 17 and 18. Even in the subjection of creation, there's a note of hope. There's hope in the midst of the subjection. Look at what it says in verse 21, the second part of it. Into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's freedom from subjection is unto glory. But notice what this glory is. Creation's glory is the glory of the children of God. Note here that you would be set free into the freedom of the glory of who? The children of God. You, creation is longing for the day when the children of God revealed. Why? Because when they are revealed on that day, creation itself will be swept up in the glory of God's children. Notice how this is just perfect bookends. Why is creation under subjection? Because of man's sin. Why will creation come out of subjection and in glory? Because man will be glorified through what Christ has done. So just as creation was plunged into ruin in connection with man and his fall, his sin, so ultimately creation's rise into glory will be in connection with man because of what the God-man did, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life, laid down his life as a ransom for many, and rose triumphant from the grave. You see how this makes sense of the biblical story? Creation was made to be the setting in which man exercised dominion, the setting in which man brought glory to God, and when man fell, it affected everything under his rule. If you have a bad king, a bad king affects everything in his dominion. Everyone underneath the bad king suffers. When there are good kings, good things, blessings come to a realm. But when there's a bad king, the whole realm is affected. We, by God's creative power, were not only made in his image, but were made kings over creation under him. But when we violated his command, when we said we rebel against him as our rightful king, then all that underneath subjection to us also was affected. So the only way to make that right is for us to be made right. The only way creation is made set right is for man to be set right. But the only way for man to be set right is for God to set us right. And that's the glory of the gospel. 
When God, by his grace and mercy, welcomes home his sons in the resurrection, so also will all of creation be swept up into that glory. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the fate of creation is indissolubly linked with that of man. The fate of man and the fate of the whole cosmos are inextricably linked, and the one follows the other. What happens with man, so happens with creation. If man falls, creation is subjected. If man is resurrected and redeemed and reclaimed, so is creation resurrected, redeemed, and reclaimed. We who were created and then fell must be recreated, so it is true with creation, which was created, subjected, and must now be recreated. You see, we as Christians are are certain that we will spend eternity in a perfect world of God's making. So whenever there have been many philosophers who have come and gone, many world leaders, some of them still in existence to this day, right, who speak of utopias, speak of bringing on the utopia for the world, you know, one world government, you know, the, the, great, the great reset, or whatever else they try to throw out there. And we've seen it in the past, too, going back to people like Marx and, and others, right, where there's ideas of what utopia is, of bringing about a perfect world, These people are not wrong to long for a perfect world. There should be a longing in our heart that says, something's wrong. This is messed up. This isn't the way it should be. You're right if you feel that way. And those guys who are wrong about their conclusions were right about the problem. You know, at A&M, I I started out as an engineering major and then finished as a sociology major. Uh, More to that story. Talk about it later if you want to talk to me about it. But one thing that I learned through that is that sociologists are really great at diagnosing problems, but horrible at solutions. Like, they did a good job going like, that's a problem, that's a problem, that's a problem. And on every one of those things, like, yep, 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 and yep. But meanwhile, when it comes around to, like, solving them, it's just awful. Like, I remember sitting through classes and, like, you know, being the odd man out, you know, you're at A&M, a pretty conservative school. I'll tell you, if there's any liberals on campus, they're in the sociology department at A&M. And I was right there in the middle of them all. Um, but just reading about various man-made utopias and realizing just, like, they were doomed to fail from the start. <laughs> Even looking at the lives of the people putting forward their utopian schemes. Like, all I have to do is look at your life and go, like, you're not fitted to try to make something like that. Who's going to actually bring this to pass? You see, the desire for utopia is not a bad thing. It it should be part of the human condition. We're in a fallen, messed up world. Shouldn't it be better than this? Yes. The problem is when you think you can set it right. When you think you're the one that's going to be the supreme architect to bring that to pass. All those man-made utopias have been and are doomed to fail. But God will complete his recreation, and all those in Christ will enjoy a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Certainly, there's more subsidiary topics we could get on. I know we we can get in all kinds of things like, well, what about man's responsibility to exercise a wise dominion over the earth? Absolutely, we're called to do that. Or what about creation care? That's another phrase that's sometimes used. Like, you know, should we just pollute all the rivers because it doesn't matter because we can't do anything anyway? No, no, no. It's not what I'm saying. Please don't say that's what I'm saying. But but there there must be a realization that while we are salt and light, while we ought to provide a restraining and preserving influence in this world, and while we ought to exercise a wise dominion out of love for our God and love for our fellow man, at the heart, at the deep down, the, the heart of this matter is a realization that our hope is not in our ability to make a new world, but in God's power to do it 
He will perfectly bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to come through a real recreation. You see, creation was originally made very good, but the fall changed things. Man's sin meant the subjection of creation, and that meant thorns and thistles make life hard for us. The natural bent of this world is downward. Things are hard. Things aren't the way they should be. But that's not the end of the story. And as Mu remarks, the ultimate destiny of creation is not annihilation, but transformation. Listen to 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. When you kind of combine statements made in Scripture regarding this coming recreation, I'd also direct you to Revelation 22. For our purposes this morning, I won't, I won't read that passage, but look at Revelation 22. It seems like the picture is maybe something akin to like metal that's being purified through fire. It's being refined and purified. It's being melted down to its bare essentials and then formed into something more beautiful than before. In a similar way, creation will be recreated. The destruction of the heavens by burning and the melting of the elements will be followed by a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. So take heart, brothers and sisters. God's plan of redemption is so grand, get this, that when we are ushered into glory, all of creation will be swept up in that glory as well. Here's the thing. I know for years when I was a kid, like the thoughts of heaven were always like weird and creepy to me. I shared this before, I think, with you. You know, the thought of like floating around on a cloud playing a harp, you know, with baby cherub angels. Like that's just weird. Like what is that? I was almost scared as a kid. Like that sounds weird and I don't, I'm not looking forward to that at all. That's not what the Bible describes is what it's going to be like for us. A new earth, a physical earth, new heavens, the new Jerusalem, a massive city, all to God's glory. We'll, we'll live an embodied existence in new resurrected bodies, not a nebulous spiritual state floating around nebulously, becoming one with the universe, whatever that means. None of that stuff. Real resurrected bodies living on a real, tangible new heavens and new earth in a renewed creation. Where all the sad things have become untrue, right? Where all good things have now here. Sin done away with. Death gone. Disease gone. Disability gone. Working and serving the King of kings and Lord of lords. Enjoying his presence. Enjoying one another to his glory. The point that's being made here in the first of three illustrations, here's one way in which groaning gives way to glory. Even creation itself, which is in present groaning, will one day be swept up into that glory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and grace, and thank you that while this world is fallen and groaning and full of troubles, trials, hardships, and persecutions, that this is not the way things will end. We know that the victory is already secure. We know that Christ has already died and risen. 
that he awaits the day in which you tell, in which he's told by you, Father, to go and get his bride. Lord, as we await the consummation of history, as we encounter present groaning, help us to live in light of these realities. Help us to live in light of the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Thank you that we can take great hope in a coming true utopia, one that you have made, one that you will bring to pass. Help us to direct lost souls to repent of their sin and trust in Christ that they might also become inheritors of that wondrous glory and be revealed on that coming day. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.